Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for dropping by The Tully Show, where once again we will be spending some quality time with longtime Boston Globe rock journalist Jim Sullivan, discussing his latest book and his long and illustrious career. Don't forget, if music pods are your bag, there is a veritable buttload waiting for you at my Patreon. Every single month, we talk about new releases. I do a pod about some stuff I'm into that you might be into. A pod called Bands You Might Like. We do I Heard These Guys Are Good, a pod where we check out the stuff that you guys like that you think other people might like. We talk about guilty pleasures. We talk about uh, classic rock. I check out a bunch of classic rock albums that I frankly don't really give a shit about, but they're a thing, so I check them out and we chop it up about those, and that's just the music pods. That's not even talking about Rambling Man and Tully Time and Year in Review. There are so many monthly Patreon-exclusive pods. I literally can't remember all of them off the top of my head. Uh, If you haven't been there in a while, come on back. If you've never been, see what you have been missing exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, Your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, Give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today and making his Tully Show return, a longtime staff writer for the Boston Globe and now the author of a second volume of his career-spanning opus, Backstage and Beyond, 45 Years of Classic Rock, Chats and Rants, available this week through Trouser Press Books. Hello and welcome back, Jim Sullivan. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. Small correction, the second book is called Modern Chats and Rants. No kidding! Simply simply to differentiate it and to suggest these, uh, the people that I write about in this book, basically started their career somewhere in the mid-70s mm-hmm. onward, which, as you might gather, means pretty much a lot of punk, post-punk, and new wave music. Right. I guess um, the history of rock and roll kind of provided you a pretty convenient fault line, because it really does seem like what... Now, I don't want to say the history of rock is over, but certainly the, the chapter of, of, of like capital C, capital R, classic rock, seems like it is drawn to a close. Who knows what is to come? And uh, the book seemingly sort of picks up there with this sense among a lot of the bands that you document in uh, uh, chronologically early in, in, in the book and just literally uh, layout-wise, chapter-wise in the book, that rock and roll had hit a sort of dead zone in the mid to late 70s. And of course, not to say nothing was going on, something is always going on. Um, Let me ask you something. As somebody, I was born in 1977, so I'm seeing all this stuff in hindsight and basing a lot of my opinions on the opinions of people who were on the ground at the time. And I know know that, you know, you're, you're not that much older than me, but did it, do you, 
did it really feel that way in, in say, 1976 before a Sex Pistols or a Ramones record showed up in your local record store, before those bands came to your town? Was there really this sense of of, of uh, rock and roll ennui, of, of like nothing is happening and where do we go from here? I think there was often in the mainstream. Uh, that was the year, the era of uh, cookie cutter bands sort of the anonymous, or at least in my world, uh, bands like REO Speedwagon and Sticks that all kind of got lumped together. And we were pleasant enough, melodic enough, but kind of ho-hum, uh, which is not to say I didn't find great stuff to listen to during that era. I mean, there was Roxy Music, there was Lou Reed, there was Iggy Pop. Some of those people covered in the first book. Bowie, yeah. But yes, there was, there was a sense that mainstream rock had hit this kind of dull zone that was making it just comfortable for people to listen to on radio uh and it needed to kick up the arse as many have said and uh this is what punk rock did and opened many many doors uh the chapter actually on the police when i was talking to them back in 79 they first came to town it was interesting because uh you know i was being a little bit snarky i guess and said like well you guys aren't really a, a punk band are you now you know reggae you know pop and all that you know with a handsome lead singer and and they were saying no no we're not we're not a punk band but what punk did was it kicked open the doors for bands like us and i mean they were very respectful of what the sex pistols the clash and uh, others had done for them uh inadvertently maybe but uh you know, that was, they, they were really right about that. There was a lot that came through, came rushing through that door, a lot of creativity. Yeah, it certainly seems like um, uh, when I go back and read about, you know, whether it's the police or even, you know, the New Romantics, the, the Duran Durans, there's sort of like, there's the wave of bands that we talk about from that first big strike of the punk rock movement. And then... Everybody who would be noteworthy, particularly out of England, say in like the breaking through in the 80 to 85 range, were in the crowd at all of the be it the Sex Pistols or the Clash or the right. Damn shows. Right. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, uh, well, I'm not, yeah, there was a scene. I mean, England in particular being a small country, right. but with an intense music press, uh, especially at that time. Uh, that covered bands, you know, from north to south, you know, London, Leeds, uh, you know, wherever uh, things might be happening. And I got the sense as a Yank, I, I didn't go there until 1985, but I certainly got the sense listening to it here that there was a vibrancy and a, a closeness uh, from one band to another, the connections that they had that maybe we didn't have here in the U.S. We had it in cities, the one I'm, I'm in, Boston, certainly New York. Uh, L.A., Minneapolis, Athens, you know, there were scenes, certainly. Uh, I just got the sense that in England, there was much more cohesiveness that way. And the fact that the music was popular. Uh, the Sex Pistols had a number one single. Uh, that was not the case in the U.S. Uh, it was still and remained an underground phenomenon, if you will, for quite some time. Well, I love the, uh, while we're on the subject... What are your general impressions, or, or have they been um, throughout your career, of the British music press as opposed to the uh, American music press? I lived in England for a year, and I think it's hard for a lot of people here to understand. I never really made this connection until <clears throat> just now, but um, we had the local music weekly where I'm from in New Jersey in the New York area. It was the Aquarian, and then it was the East Coast yeah. Rocker, and then it was the Aquarian again that's closer in spirit to what they had over there where you have the new, you know, NME and you have the, the melody maker. And it always seemed like in the same way that say tabloid 
newspapers uh, need to have heroes and villains to get people to 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 buy copies every week in the in the English papers. Two papers on a weekly basis in a relatively small country competing for 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 readers. Blur, Oasis. We need we need the biggest band ever, and then we need their next album to be the worst album ever, so that the next <laughs> album can be the amazing comeback story. We need this guy to get on heroin, and then we desperately need him to clean up so we can do the redemption story of him holding hands with his daughter that he now spends time with. Um, it's different, and I'm sure you. you well, I guess the question I'm 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 asking is. You, I'm sure, you know, rub shoulders with some British music journalists. You certainly read uh, British music journalism. How do you feel like the it was different in the way that you were expected to approach your job as opposed to, say, a staff writer at a Melody Maker? Um, I, I guess the Mel Melody Maker, the NME, you should add one more to that mix, a magazine called Sounds, which mm -hmm. was also there. That was more of a hard rock metal magazine, but still in the mix. Yeah. Um, I think there was a combativeness to it, as you suggest, right. uh, with the writers and sometimes the artists, sometimes the writers uh, between themselves. Uh, I, I got to say, there was just some great, incisive and humorous writing that came out during that period that I'm sure influenced me up to a point. I couldn't go to the extremes in where I was working, uh, at the, mostly at the Boston Globe, as a freelancer at that time. Uh, that they went to for good reason. I mean, it was a daily newspaper and certain words you wouldn't write and certain tangents you wouldn't perhaps go off on. Uh, but I really, I, I mean, I picked up the papers pretty much every week when they came into Bangor, Maine, which is where I lived before I moved to Boston and then Boston, uh, all the time. Um, because they were on top of things that I may have just heard about, may have not heard about. And, even if there was what you might call overhype, as you say, they're looking for the next big thing, then they may tear it down the next next time out, who knows. Um, but just that uh, quest, I guess, and, and passion and interest translated to me uh, via print. And me being a print guy, it was like, yeah, I, I'd like to put that energy into what I do as well and, and show that same kind of passion, uh, uh, albeit not with, uh, you know, quite as perhaps quite as naughty a way to do it. Right, right. They kept it fun. Um, uh, it, uh, uh, I think it was was the main positive, I guess, of what I saw about the approach. It was definitely a less staid approach than what I would expect from, you know, say, oh, yeah. a Rolling yeah. Stone or something like that. So let's talk about volume two of your book, which, as we said, starts more, you know, pretty much exactly where the, the punk movement starts. You were fortunate enough to see sort of the, the, the holy trinity of <clears throat> the Ramones, the Clash, and uh, the Sex Pistols, um, each of them relatively early on in their career if you had to pick one just based, not not your impressions of their records or, or or talking to them personally just the live experience if you had to pick one which of the three uh made the strongest impression on you as standing there watching the stage i will whistle out and say it was a three-way tie but i will say this mm -hmm. the ramones were the first band that i saw of those of yeah. that bunch and i saw them at cbgb halloween 1977 uh, I was a member of the press, and Hilly Crystal, the owner of the club, was very good to the press. And he put me and my little group, two or, th two or three other people with me, uh, right at the front. 
And the Ramones played I, probably a 25-minute set, 30-minute set. I can't remember, but it, they, that's what they did. Short, you know, virtually no breaks between songs. Very loud. Yes, my ears rang for a week. Uh, and just this intense blast of, of waves of sound that just made so much sense to me. There was, there was humor. Uh, there were just these killer riffs. There was being part of a crowd that dug it and dug it so intensely uh it was it was just kind of it was the first maybe the first time i'd felt that sort of bond with band and crowd being one and the same and these things did follow over i will say to the pistols i saw their uh u.s debut in atlanta and then the clash when they first came to boston in 1979 they played a place called the harvard square theater so you know i as i said at the beginning here i mean all three of those my first experience with each band was really really something it always struck me with the ramones <clears throat> first as uh you know just just a music fan and and you know seeing videos or, or reading the articles and then i've spent some time in a professional capacity around um marky ramone who i understand is mm -hmm. not you know not an original founding member but was in bands around the same time oh wait, and he he was in the band a long time he sure certainly. was yeah marky's a good voice i've yeah spent some time with him too sure there always seemed to be something sort of savantish about the ramones you know the music so many people will agree was uh, inspired but the guys didn't come across as particularly eloquent i would say in person and indeed um i was already planning to kind of ask you about this and then they address it uh in in very early on in the book in 1979 you have a quote from johnny ramone they keep saying these guys are so stupid that all they do is sit there and stare at the walls and they can't even talk <laughs> yes. I'm reminded, and I'm, I'm trying to not be rude here, not that it really, he's not here to be offended by it anymore, but you know, there's the, the, the Homer Simpson uh, classic quote, dumb like a fox. Yeah. To what extent were these, were these guys disguising some deep intellectualism behind the character of being Ramones in matching outfits and matching haircuts? Or were they just the sort of like Yogi Berra was a genius baseball player who could not right. art could literally said like said, I can't explain it. Just watch me do it. That is a very good question. And it's one that's been asked and argued for years. Right. I, I think in print, uh, I remember, I don't know if I wrote it or somebody wrote it, certainly the idea of are they idiots or idiot savants? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And, and I would say, uh, there was a cleverness to the Ramones songs that maybe didn't always come across when you talk to them. Mm -hmm. They're not alone in being musicians who speak better through their music than they do through their words in interviews. So, I mean, there is that. Uh, but they were pretty sharp in terms of their immersion in pop culture. Uh, in history, to a certain way, Dee Dee uh, spent a lot of his life in Germany uh, before coming to Forest Hills, New York, and meeting the brothers. And uh, you know, there were songs very much about Germany, World War II, songs that were a little bit, uh, you know, maybe dicey if you just read the lyrics. But listening to the songs, Blitzkrieg, Bop, Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World, uh, there was an intelligence that certainly was somewhere behind these songs that seemed so simple and so, you know, if you will, cartoon-like. And that's the thing, too, as, as they say in the book, when I asked Dee Dee and uh, Johnny uh, together about what cartoons they liked, it was sort of like, okay, yeah, let's have a discussion. We can talk about cartoons. I don't know. I don't like cartoons as much, but I really like, you know, but it was going, it was not to call them in some ways a cartoon was not an offense at all. Cartoons can be fun, and they were. 
Sure, and you can be uh, um is that you 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 can you can dumb down the thing that you're presenting to the world in a very very intelligent way. I mean, The Simpsons obviously come come yeah. to mind for that. Dee Dee struck yeah. me, at, and I, I I don't know what I am basing this on. As uh, if you went backstage and you told me one of the Ramones was reading a novel backstage before they went out there, I understand Dee Dee did a lot of other things that didn't lend themselves to kicking back with a book. But like, right. it's hard for me to imagine. Um, I guess really Johnny or, or, or Joey kicking back with some Russian literature uh, on a day off. Am I wildly off base there? I don't think either one of them would have done that. Neither would no. I, for that matter. Yeah, no, me neither. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, Johnny, from my time with him, was primarily offstage concerned with the books, mm. how much money they were making, how many T-shirts they sold. Uh, I mean, he was the eagle eye on the uh, the the scratch if you will yeah um i i think dd um it's hard to say i mean you know dd did have so many problems the drug problems which he battled all his life um but he also had this unquenchable enthusiasm as well and a struggle within him and i i don't know if you know reading books would have been anything that any of them would really do talk about whatever. I don't know. Uh, I think Joey uh, certainly had uh, an intelligence that was expressed through his lyrics. They had to come from somewhere. And I, I'm sure there's, you know, if you will, reading material in the mix, but probably more movies, you know, TV, uh, yeah. you know, pop culture kinds of things. Yeah, I see. Uh, another quote from Johnny in from your book from 1979. I hate disco music. It's disgusting. It's some kind of communist plot to make our brains smooth. Each artist sounds the same. Everything sounds the same. It's fabricated. It's moronic. Uh, I think... He may have been laying it on a little thick for the sake of a good quote. I think he believed that. I think he probably died thinking that about disco. How important was it to be a card-carrying member of the of the punk rock world in, in 1977 or 1979 to actually embrace that all the way through? Because I've always said I, I feel that the, the benefit of age is that I can love punk rock records and I can love disco. I was never compelled to be in, right. in, in one camp or the other. It goes without saying there was good and bad disco music. Um was there anybody in the punk world who was allowed to have a, a more nuanced take than the one Johnny expressed toward disco well, in 1979? Certainly talking heads and blondie. Sure. Um, right, of course. Yeah. A, a little bit later. Um, I think what Johnny was saying, just back to what you were asking about, uh, you know, his tone, mm -hmm. I think he meant it. I mean, he maybe was exaggerating a little bit, right. but at that period, there was, if you will, a sort of war between punk and disco. I mean, and I use war in quotation marks because it's not a real war. Um, but the audiences were different. And I mean, after the quote that Johnny, you just read about Johnny, I think I said something to the effect of, um, couldn't these things also be applied to the remotes? I mean, yeah. it's so repetitive. You know, it's so da-da-da-da-da. Uh, the argument could be thrown in right back in his face. So it's really a matter of taste. What kind of repetition do you like? Yeah. And, um, you know, in the disco punk situation, yeah, I wasn't a disco fan much. I was, you know, a 4-4 four, four beat, endless da-da-da. Um, and it was... Yes, later in life where I sort of went, oh, wait a minute. Yes, there's Chic was a 
considered a disco band. Donna Summer, of course, did some great stuff. Uh, Chaka Khan, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people that might have been lumped into disco uh, had some really good tunes. And the cultures did blend together, especially uh, with what, as I said, with what Talking Heads did, with what Blondie did, um, and later with what Run DMC and Aerosmith did to kind of take it out of the punk rock realm, but bringing rap to rock. So that's kind of a different issue there. But um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was interesting times. And I mean, I, I'm what you're talking about from your period, looking back on that, you do have that perspective of, okay, I didn't grow up with the battle and I can look at the scene. I can take an overview of it and appreciate the good from each, each uh, segment, if you will. Yeah. So very, yeah, a very different kind of, uh, and an equally valid point of view. This is where you're coming from. Um, the clash would also to an extent embrace some, some disco beats. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. In their music. Now, how would you describe um, the dynamic, I guess, between Joe and Mick? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I know it obviously didn't end very well between them. I'm reminded, though, of the there's the John Lennon quote about Paul McCartney, where Paul McCartney, they're, they're laughing behind his back about Paul's bringing in another granny song for this record. Yeah. But John yeah. Lennon says, but... They're never gonna. You're never. They're never gonna be singing one of my songs in a bar in Spain, knowing that 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 for as much as he resented the cheesiness that Paul often brought to the table, he also knew that when push came to shove, uh, Paul could write a universal song mm-hmm. that that John didn't couldn't get to that spot nearly as often. That is what the Clash sort of seemed like to me. Joe is the thinking man. Joe. In, intellectualizes things. He has something to say with his music. Mick can kind of. I mean, there's a song. There's this band, The Avalanches, that I that I that I love. That put out a record a couple of years ago, and they've got Mick Jones in the background, just going oh oh, and just a Mick Jones uh oh can carry any chorus in mm-hmm. the world. <laughs> I have no idea if I'm completely imagining all of this. Was there any tension to the fact that? I feel like there's always like the Pixies are a good example of Frank Black's the guy had to work for it. Kim deals the effortless one that there's that there's that tension between the one who's naturally fun, naturally cool, naturally lights up the room, naturally just sings a very basic hook and it sings. I've got to work twice as hard to maybe I fear be not quite as good. Was there any sort of a Lennon McCartney tension in that specific regard between those two? I think that's not far off, I, I think. Um, they each brought different things to the band. And Mick, probably the, the more pop side, the mm-hmm. lighter side in general. Yeah, the harmonies that he did, the backing vocals he did were great. Um, I think they complemented each other very, very well, uh, especially in the early days. And, I mean, it wasn't all as cut and dried as maybe we're saying here. I think there yep. was some bleed, bleed over between the two. Uh, you know, Joe had his romantic songs and, and Mick had his, his harsher songs. Um, but what I, I do recall, too, uh, going back to that first gig and then a few others, too, is just the way they interacted on stage. And it was sort of, a, it was a frenzy, especially the first gig, it was sort of a frenzy in a way with them running about and going to different mics to sing different parts 
with seemingly without any rehearsal going into it or without any calculation. And sometimes when one of them would be not at the mic when he was supposed to be, you know, he'd be running over to get on mic if he could to sing his part. And if he did, great. If he didn't, hey, that's rock and roll, right? And so that interaction, I just really loved. I mean, it was sort of a, uh, a you know, a wildness to it. Um where they obviously played off each other very well. And, and the bassist Paul Simon uh, in that mix also, uh, sort of the three of them just kind of pinballing around the stage. So, I mean, that's another kind of, uh, if you will, uh, not tension really. I mean, it's the way they just simply the way they played off each other. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any particular insight into how songs got written exactly, who brought what to the table. Um, you know, often it was a collaborative, uh, you know, songwriting credit. So you really, unless you're in the room, you don't know exactly who's contributing what to what. And there may be songs that Nick wrote most of that Joe sung or vice versa, you know. Um, what was your take on, uh, the, the Libertines many years later? Cause when you're talking about just whoever gets to the mic, whenever they get there is going to sing this line kind of thing. Um, the, the, it was it's unclear to me how calculated the libertines were in in yeah. replicating that to me it passed the smell test even though it was obvious you know who their who their influences were but i could also see somebody who had for example seen the clash on stage on their first us tour <laughs> considering right. these guys you know the lenny kravitz of british punk rock um i like i, lo I think the first libertines record is great for uh despite being derivative um what, what did do you did you have any take on the libertines I agree with you on that. I never saw them live. No, me neither. Uh, yeah. so, it so just it felt it felt it felt that way in the studio that they were trying to replicate the haphazard who you know right. who's singing this line, who's singing that line. Right. I would agree with that. I mean I mean I like that kind of energy. And you know, that whole th sort of thing, the argument about derivative or you know, uh, you know, people argue that forever. Is it derivative or is it pain homage and picking up on cues, you know, that they've bands I've seen before. History of rock and roll is is uh, rife with that, um, and, uh, and the the Clash certainly. I mean, among the people they picked up upon, uh, you know, uh, and the covers that they did from the reggae covers to I Fought the Law to whatever. So I mean, there's this long line of um, you know continuous uh, continuation, and I think the Libertines certainly are in that line of uh, we'll pick up on these cues and you know we'll make it our own. Yeah. You know? No doubt. Um, in the book you say, I have interviewed uh, John a fair amount of times as Rotten and as Leiden. Yeah. Um, and I assume that you meant sometimes on a Sex Pistols tour and sometimes yeah. on a PIL tour, but there i've also spoken to the man and there's a sense sometimes you're talking to the character johnny rotten and maybe just maybe if you're lucky you might get to talk to john lyden the person in in little snatches here and there in your experience talking to him how often have you felt that he was giving you the bluster the the interview performance and how often do you feel like you got to talk to the 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 more real person underneath and what do you feel like you learned about that person i think i got to talk to the real person often but yes there was in that uh a certain case of of, of bluster although i would say very articulate bluster for sure and a distinction between rotten and Lyden, i mean they those were they were both him and when the pistols were gone 
and it was just pill. He obviously wanted to talk about pill. And uh, yes, perhaps talk about that in a more serious way than he would have when he was just simply with the pistols. Later, when the pistols came back, did the reunion tours, the filthy lucre tour and, and other things. Um, did he slip into character? Well, he certainly did on stage. I mean, he played the Johnny Rotten character. The first time I saw them, uh, it was funny. I think his opening line was, you know, we're fat, we're 40, and we're back, or something to that effect. And, you know, we're, can, we're cash. Here we are to cash in. Uh, so John Johnny took the piss out of people, as did John around Leiden. I mean, uh, there was a very enjoyable, from my point of view, contentious quality to talking with John. And I did get the sense that, you know, he he was heartfelt in what he thought. And he also didn't mind somebody disagreeing. I mean, he liked a good tussle, a good argument. And I mean, that well, that makes a good interview. And it makes, I enjoy it because it means he's, one, he's listening to what I'm saying, uh, the questions or, or the responses, and he's coming back with something too. So it, I think it's engaging uh, both to do and then to, to write about later. Uh, to have somebody who's who is so intellectually engaged, and uh, that John, you know, I think always has been uh, love him or hate him, and I mean he's done things that can make you uh, end up on either side of that divide. Um, you know, his swing toward right wing politics, for instance, in sort of go, well, is that is that real, or is he again? Is he taking the piss here? That I'm not so sure about. Um, he's a complicated guy, no question about that. Um. Uh, one more question about the, the the early genesis of of punk rock. You know, given that you were around to witness a lot of it in real time, um, where do the damned fit into this for you? Uh, there's never been a damned press release for 50 years that doesn't start with a line about how they actually put out the first punk record, and yet they. Uh, are marginalized in this conversation because they didn't make the same impact that the three bands we've talked about so far did. Right. And yet the early stuff was good. And when the punk bands were good, the damned were good. And the damned put out a record, like, I don't know, eight months ago. And I thought the single was kind of cool. Like where, wh where, where are we to put the damned in, well, in this? The damned, they mutated from being, if you will, a punk band into yeah. a punk slash kind of goth band. Right. Um, you know, fairly early and psychedelic band fairly early on. So their definition of punk, which certainly on that first, first single and first album, you know, straight up hard, fast, et cetera. It mutated pretty quickly into other things, other, other sounds. And, you know, frankly, I mean, the fact that they still exist, uh, with Dave Vanian, the lead singer and Captain Sensible, the former bassist, now guitarist together, uh, you know, suggests that they had something musical and personally that kept them going off and on. They, they, <laughs> they were apart for many years, but has kept it. Uh, intact into some degree through all these years. And I think people who go see them now uh, have that feeling of, yeah, they were there in the beginning and look at them. They're still kicking some ass now, albeit in a different way. And I, I think this is in the book. I asked Captain Sensible about it, you know, ever retiring and said, you know, why would we do that? And he said, you know, as long as those old buggers of the Rolling Stones are doing it, I'm not going to, we're not going to pack it in before they do. And, you know, it was sort of a good snotty line about, um, it, what else am I going to do? You know, and actually, Lemmy <laughs> said that to me once too. When I thought, you know, do you think you're getting a little old for this hard, fast Motorhead music? And it was like, 
you know, what could I do? Host a talk show? <laughs> no offense. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Well, and, and of all the things, <laughs> Lemmy, Lemmy probably could have. And he, I, that was my thought too. Was yeah, yeah Jesus, you'd be great at that. Um, but uh, but you, you're sort of like you know, if this is what you do, and enough people still support what you do, and I think back to the dam for a second. Um, they, when you go away and come back, and especially after all this time, you're not seen as just sort of old hat. Oh yeah, they're at it again. You know, it's sort of a constant thing. Who cares? It's sort of like fresh and revived. I think in people's minds and certainly people of my age who saw them early on and maybe haven't paid any attention for the last who knows how many years can go, Oh my God, they're still with us. Let's go see them. How are they? And you know, my answer, I've seen them a bunch is they're pretty much a ton of fun still. Um, you know, both the old, old stuff they do and the new stuff they do, they create some good things. The album they did with Tony Visconti was terrific. And, uh, you know, I love the idea that they're out there making music and noise and, uh, uh, you know, again, to use the, the term, taking the piss out of people all the time. Uh, for somebody in your line of work, I can't imagine, um, higher accomplishment, higher praise than to have a band take a phrase that you wrote about them and make it an album title and particularly when it may be your personal favorite band do you remember the circumstance the circumstances under which you found out that there was an album from the fall whose title quoted you um i got the album looked at the title i don't know if it hit me immediately but i thought well that sounds familiar accurate and then I went back through the files to see that an album review I'd done a couple albums ago, perhaps in the globe had that exact phrase there. And, um, I, I it would, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of, yeah, I, I'm, I'll take credit for that. I mean, they did it before, I believe. I forget who wrote this, but they had an album called This Nation Saving Grace. Uh, one of the English critics, I believe, had called them that. So they picked up, they used that as an album, uh, title before Caustic Cerebral, Cerebral Caustic. And, uh, yeah, it, it felt good. It was, it was a fun thing. The, the other thing was, uh, the pleasant, pleasant surprise was getting a Christmas card from Mark E. Smith and his wife, Bricks. I think it was in the late 90s. It and it showed up. It was sent to my home, not to the Globe where I was working, but to my home address, which I don't know how in the hell they even had, but there it was. And, and you know, a Christmas card from, you know, the most acerbic man in English post-punk music just wishing me a happy Christmas, him and his wife. So there, there are odd things, pleasant things that happen along the way. Uh, we touched on the fall <clears throat> briefly the last time we spoke at the end of our conversation. As I told you then, they're my favorite bands, my favorite, uh, my favorite band's favorite band. So I'm just like, oh, this is great. This is going to be perfect. I've never heard of these guys. And boy, oh boy, have I tried. And boy, oh boy, have I heard snippets moments there's just such a scattershot approach to the way that uh they he whatever you want to say make music is there and i know the answer is no but i'm going to ask anyway is there anything that you can tell me you go well the thing about the fall is you got to understand blah 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 and then it'll kind of make more sense to you is there anything that you can say that can recontextualize the fall for me in a way that might make me hear what people like yourself and like um uh this uh, songwriter i'm a big fan of luke haynes here that i am missing because i just do not get it i will go to 
There's something I believe I recorded in the book that the great late English DJ uh, John Peel said about them. The falls sound always the same, and they're always different. Right. And I think holding those two things together in your mind helps because there is exactly that, a sameness to the approach. Mark's singing, talking, ranting mixed into, under, sometimes over, this kind of rattling, shambolic sound that goes every which way. And I agree. I mean, in terms of bands that are probably the most difficult to get into, um, you know, a first listen, second listen, I mean, there's certainly going to be a case of what the hell is that guy going on about? And and frankly, I mean, I would ask him that sometimes uh, when I didn't, if I was talking to him and I didn't pick up on the words, they weren't printed anywhere. I didn't know what they were. And, you know, you hear things the way you hear things. And I say, was this? And he's going, no, 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 it was that. And so I, I guess in some ways, not knowing, but appreciating it, I, it for the syntax, the way the words fit into the rhythms, the way he was somewhere between very engaged and very lackadaisical, uh, obviously uh, powered by speed and coke at various points in his life, and um, having what I think was a pretty great sense of humor about a lot of things, including himself. I would also highly recommend his memoir. Uh, he is an unreliable narrator to the max, and it is hilarious. I mean, it's one of the best rock bios I think I've ever read. Um, and I, how much of it is true, I don't know. I mean, 10, 20 percent, 30, 40, I don't know. But it's it's such a riot to read him his take on what he did and what the band did. So, you know, if he, after you're done be backstage and beyond, go to, go to Mark's bio. <laughs> yeah, I, m- I might give that a look because I, I I am absolutely uh, I'm absolutely curious. Let me ask you about <laughs> New Order. Um, I uh, you know I realized something. Um, you know, the through line of the things I'm interested in asking you about, both in in this interview and and the last one is. Um, these artists who I realize at the end of the day, I, I, I have a feeling, I have a strong feeling and in, in, in understanding and intuition about their music, but I don't really feel like I, I have a, a feeling of where the actual artist, who the person is, where they're coming from. So I get to New Order in, in volume two, and I like New Order. I, all in all, I, I don't have a ton of music of theirs in my collection, but um, but I would call myself a New Order fan. I realize... Not only do I not know anything about Bernard Sumner, I don't think I've even, I'm not sure I've ever seen a photo of him. He is about as anonymous as the singer. Of, I mean, you're not talking about, this is a band that is legendary, respected, longstanding, the commercial crossover to the at peaks of UK and US charts without sacrificing an iota of credibility. I don't even know what his, I mean, I have a mental image is this anonymous British dude holding, uh, holding a guitar while he sings. Um, who, who is, who is, who is he? Well, when Joy Division went down after Ian Curtis's suicide, and the band decided they would continue on. They would change the name and, and try to deal with it. Do they bring somebody else in new to be Joy Division? No, no, we're, Joy Division is done. And then they had this dilemma of between, or among the three of them, who takes over the lead vocals. They all tried, and none of them at the time were particularly great. 
uh, Bernard sort of won the uh, the decision, the vote, whatever, uh, you know, sort of by default. He's a very plain-voiced singer. I don't think he would ever claim to be a great singer. He's not. But he conveys the emotions necessary in a New Order song very well, um, Temptation being one of them. And, uh, you know, I think... In the early days, especially, I mean, they kept their pictures off album covers, and um, there was this sort of image of them being anonymous or or not. They're, they're who they what they looked like was not important to the person buying the record or listening to the record. Um, so I think that was there. Um, they've had an awful long run, and of course, the contentiousness with Peter Hook uh, that Sumner had still has. And Hook going off to start his own band playing Joy Division and New Order songs quite well, I might add. Um, long legacy and a very complex one, too, with a lot of ups and a lot of downs and the usual, you know, uh, harrowing slash humorous drug tales uh, that both of them can tell. And uh don't know if that answers your question. Or not, but... I mean, is he... I don't even know what I'm what I'm looking for here. I mean, I think he's really, really underrated, and this is the ultimate damning with faint praise. But sometimes I wonder if his 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 vocal range is is even two octaves, and nobody makes it sound like they're they're just like waltzing, crooning through. You know, you take uh you know bizarre love triangle, and I mean it's like a five note hook and it just feels like he's taking you on this on this vocal roller coaster and he's not it's talk singing i'm so i'm so yeah. Im, i'm so yeah. impressed it sounds again like damn with fame praise nobody has done more with less than than yeah, yeah. I, the guy's never had a sore throat from singing in his life i can guarantee you that <laughs> and that's that's a neat trick if you can pull it out as pull it off as a singer in in a, a pop band um you know some people just like pop when they when they walk in the room and very often the lead singers of very popular bands pop when they walk in the room i he's i feel like peter hook pops more to be around than sumner is that is that fair to say yeah, i'm sorry say that again I missed that, that. that that peter hook is is more apt to light up a room oh yeah definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. uh yeah hooky has uh I, I think sort of maybe learned on the job. I mean, especially uh, after leaving New Order and right. realizing he's now fronting this band called, uh, you know, Peter Hook and the Light. Um, and and he has developed a voice that actually is very much in uh, Ian Curtis's register. So when you hear him sing the Joy Division songs in particular, there's a real uncanny feeling that he is channeling Ian and the voice is very similar. Uh, so he has become, I think, a, a much more charismatic performer than Bernard ever has been. Um, in, in New Order, when I, when Peter was in the band and I remember seeing them, you know, they, they were, none of them were particularly charismatic. I didn't think. I mean, yeah. it was again, it was that sort of bland image that, uh, you know, or, or that is, it doesn't matter what we look like or what we're, how we're running around the stage or not running around the stage. Uh, just listen to the music, enjoy the music. And that's really all that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, when you met, uh, Sting way back when, uh, late seventies or maybe 80, um, if someone had told you then all the places that that guy was going to go, you know, someday be starring in what a Broadway musical that he also wrote as the sort of cherry on top of a yeah. film. And I mean, I guess the film stuff wouldn't have been all that surprising since he was already active in that uh, world, even before the police took off. Did you have 
And do you ever have that retroactively of like, man, you meet a lot of people, they're obviously accomplished, they've obviously got a lot going on upstairs. For me to even be talking to them in the first place, they've already gotten themselves somewhere, but would, would you have been, not necessarily did you know this guy is going places, but would it have surprised you to 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 be told by a time traveler from the future that this guy is going to maybe be more successful on a, you know, a purely commercial fame level than anybody else who's in this volume of this book. It would not have surprised me. No, uh, he had that charisma looks, uh, intelligence, um, multiple talents, uh, in music from rock to jazz. I think he's a pretty darn good actor as well. And, um, that, those things I think were evident, yeah, even you know, way back in the day. So yeah, if I were to think about it and go, uh, you know, <laughs> what person in this whole milieu will, you know, really rise to some level of superstar? Yeah, I'd say something, you know, good call <laughs> if if one made that call. Yeah. Uh I'm notoriously bad on predicting what's who's gonna succeed and who's not. But uh I think I would have said, yeah, put your money on sustain for that. You may have a uneven batting average when it comes to predicting greatness in, in bands who are up and coming, but you did write the first major write-up uh, of the Pixies. Is that about correct? I It was the first mainstream newspaper review that mm -hmm. they got, I believe, in the Boston Globe. And I had seen them at a tiny but terrific club called TT, the Bears, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, many, many great bands got their start there. And... Uh, yeah, I they I believe at the time they had just the uh, the 4AD uh, the EP out on 4AD import, and uh, there was certainly a buzz about them, and uh, certainly the other press, underground press, whatever, had done uh, a fair amount on them. But yeah, I just happened to be the person who saw them, who had the position at a major newspaper to write something uh, really positive about them. And they dug it. You know, it was like, hey, you know, we're noticed by this, you know, in the Globe. Uh, it meant something. I think newspapers meant more, much more then than they did now and do now. And, uh, you know, so it was kind of a, you know, a nice feeling. Uh, you know, I would, would never claim I was instrumental to their success, but I think it was a good building block for them. I think they enjoyed, you know, reading about themselves in a place where, you know, their mom and dad could read about it too. Uh, yeah, no, it made it real. I remember I went to like a Motley Crue concert when I was a kid and then I saw the review in the Bergen record and I was like, yeah. oh, this is a thing that actually happened in the world that it, gets delivered to my parents' kitchen table. It, it, yeah, it legitimizes it in a way. Of course. It? Yeah, it does. Were you ever uh, effusive in praise of uh, up and coming or unknown band that did not hit um, where you... Uh, where you still stand by it, a band that you really thought was going to go places that didn't, and and you feel like maybe maybe you 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 were you were correct, and the world just missed the boat on this band. Um, boy, I'm sure that's a pretty long list. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> a tough one to pull out of a hat, though. I was sure. just thinking of a band called the Delgados that were a great band that I saw once and kind of you know uh, uh, sputtered ultimately. Um, you know, honestly, in my writing, I don't think I ever really tried to predict success or beyond the event itself or beyond the the interview itself. I, I think it was pretty much in the moment. These are who these guys are. Uh, take it or leave it. But I mean, my take is, if my take is positive, hey, pay attention or or pick up on what you can. 
And, um, you know, that's the best I could do. So I, I can't really, I, I'm sorry, I can't pull anything out of the hat for bands that didn't quite make it that I raved about. I'm sure there's many. <laughs> there's been a lot of bands, uh, and there's a lot of bands who are in this book. All of the ones we've talked about, uh, many we have not, up to and including Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who I was surprised yeah. to see in there, but I was kind of happy to see in there as well. Their story. Yeah, their they're story. kind of an outlier. They were, they were. It was such a, a fun interview, such a fun gig uh, that I could not do it. Yeah. The, the world is a slightly more fun place for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, they were. Ha- yeah, having existed. So uh, thank absolutely. you once again for your time, and thank you for another volume of this book. Of course, volume one remains available, and uh, people can get volume two backstage and beyond. Forty-five years of modern rock chats and rants. Um, anywhere, but why not get it from the source at trouserpressbooks.com. Thank you once again, Jim. Mike, thanks. Always a pleasure. Hey, maybe there'll be a volume three and we'll be back.